Well, you find it helpful to have that passage in Leviticus open. Shall I pray before we uh, dig into it? Thank you for your word. Thank you that all of your word is useful and is profitable for all sorts of different things in our lives. Father, we pray you'd help us this morning to understand your word. Uh, Father, that we might live uh, more for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I get asked fairly often, uh, what is the difference between your church and other churches? And one of the answers that I often give is that we don't have priests. That's a sort of quick, quick answer, <laughs> one of the differences. And to be fair, the New Testament doesn't really have priests. Leaders of churches are not called priests in the New Testament, but overseers or elders. So we don't call those people uh, priests anymore. But that poses us a problem this morning. This passage is full of rules about priests. If there are no priests, then surely these rules are irrelevant. Let's get the tippets out, and then we can all go home. Well, before you get your bags, it's not quite that simple, is it? We do have a priest in the New Testament. It's just that it's not the leaders. It's Jesus, our high priest. He is our go-between. He was the one who was offered the great sacrifice on behalf of his people, his own body, his own life on the cross. So we shouldn't be surprised if we're looking at the priest this morning that we find out something about him. And the Bible also talks about us as a nation of priests. That's of all believers. The, the doctrine, the posh name for it, is the priesthood of all believers. The thing is, though, that these passage rules sort of seem very detached from what we mean by the priesthood of believers, really, as we talk about uh, the way that we serve and minister to one another. And after all, Jesus is not a Levitical priest even, and we're not Levitical priests. He wasn't subject to these rules in his life. And I'm going to argue we're not subject to these rules either. So what is going on? Uh, What on earth are we going to talk about this morning? Well, we've been seeing over the past few weeks that the tabernacle and the sacrifices were full of symbolism. We've been seeing that week in, week out. The tabernacle was supposed to be a miniature, portable Eden. It was supposed to be a little bit of heaven on earth, so to speak. Like, imagine a snow globe (coughs) with a little garden inside. That's sort of what the tabernacle was to be like. Or if, if you like, because there was action going on, imagine a bit like a nativity play. Yeah, you've got the scenery there. <clears throat> you've got the people playing their different parts there. And the play is all about the re-entry into Eden, going back to Eden. There's the tree of life there in the menorah that they have. There's the cherubim on the curtain barring entry to the holy place and the most holy place. There's the presence of God right at the, the far west I was loving the fact we're seeing that the, even the uh, three kings came westward, didn't they, uh, to meet the king. But what we're being reminded of this morning is that we've got the sort of setting there, but the priest has a specific role to play in this sort of nativity play. He is playing the new Adam, the new man, entering into God's joyful perfection. He's a restored Adam re-entering Eden, showing that there is a way. And he plays a part in the picture that God is giving him as a way to approach him. And the way will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, both our great high priest and true second Adam. 
But if the priest, especially the high priest, are playing the role of Adam, then there are certain criteria that he must meet as playing that role. Otherwise, it will spoil the picture. Now, originally, our title for this morning was Moral Purity for the Priests. But the more I've looked at it this week, the more I've decided, really, it's nothing of the sort. Especially in chapter 21, I think I got this initially uh, wrong in my initial prep on Leviticus. This isn't all about moral purity, but a mixture of moral purity and what you might call display purity. This is a picture, a display of purity that is to be shown. If we make this all about moral purity, we're going to end up trying to justify some very strange things this morning. So, first of all, we see that the priests must fit the picture. And they do that in three different ways. Firstly, in, or all three of them, (laughs) firstly, in mourning. Uh, Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his sons, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. And it goes on. Two groups are mentioned in this passage. Aaron, the high priest, and by extension all the high priests that would follow after him. Then also you get the sons of Aaron, which are what mentioned uh, here, who are not necessarily the high priests, but they are descendants of Aaron, and they would assist him in the temple. They would do different jobs. The rules, as we'll see, are generally stricter for Aaron and the high priests than they are for the sons of Aaron, the sort of general ministry in the temple. The sons of Aaron were only allowed to defile themselves with a dead body for the sake of close relatives. That's what we just read. Being unclean would put them out of service. They couldn't go into the temple. John Wesley thinks this is a sort of plea to ministers. So John Wesley writes, And God would hereby teach them, and in all successive ministers, that they ought entirely to give themselves to the service of God, yea, to renounce all expressions of natural affection and all worldly employments, so far as they are impediments to the discharge of their holy services. He's probably right to a degree, because Jesus says something similar in Luke 9. So Luke 9, 59 and 60. He says to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So I think there's some truth there. There's definitely, there's definitely truth in Jesus' quotes, isn't there? <laughs> there's total truth in Jesus' quotes. Um, whether we're in paid ministry or not, we should be totally devoted to the Lord. That's true. But I think that there's more to it going on than just that, because it seems a bit of a random example to give, doesn't it? Just the mourning situation. So can you see, this is more than just sort of moral purity. It's a sort of display purity that we're being told about. So it's not virtuous, per se, to just go to family funerals. That's not what it's sort of saying is our application. And there are plenty of other things that could make a priest unclean. Why aren't they mentioned here? Well, there are other things that we could take that could take him away from service. But the clue is that here we're told that it's mourning. It's the, the act of sort of mourning that's making him unclean. And we're told how they are to mourn. For the sons of Aaron, it's quite general. They're told they can mourn, but not like pagans. That's what it's talking about with, in verse 5, about them not making bald patches on their heads and shaving off parts of their beards. 
apparently in those days you, you could sort of, if you were mourning, you would do these sort of crazy things with your hair and you'd sort of cut yourself and all sorts of things. That was the pagan way. The general priests are allowed to mourn, just not in the ways of the nations around them. But for the high priests, it was really quite strict. So have a look at verse 11. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. So for the high priest, no funerals except for possibly his wife. This is one of those ones where the commentary say, it doesn't mention his wife, so it's probably obvious that he could, or it's obvious that he couldn't. You, you decide. But no funerals for anyone, really. Verse 12 tells us that he couldn't even leave the tabernacle if he was on duty. He couldn't take the holy anointing all out into the unclean world, even to go to a funeral if someone had died. We see throughout Leviticus, the holy must not come into contact with the unclean. So he can't go out with this holy oil on his head. Verse 10, he couldn't even do the normal Israelite mourning rituals, which were normally tearing your clothes and letting your hair loose. You'll see that throughout the Bible, that people do that all the time. But the high priest couldn't do that. His hair and his clothes were set apart for God, yes, they're both mentioned in the verse before. And they weren't, to do with what, they weren't for him to do what they wanted. But what's so bad about mourning in the tabernacle? Well, remember what the picture is. The tabernacle is the new Eden. The tabernacle is a picture of the new creation. Where, Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the formal things have passed away. You can't have mourning in the tabernacle because it's supposed to be a joyful picture of a world with no death or mourning. Only death in the, the, the tabernacle really was the death of the sacrifices and they were the sacrifices that made it possible. The tabernacle was supposed to be a joyful place. It's supposed to be a picture of heaven if you like. That's why you get Psalms like Psalm 100. Uh, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. If you had your new Adam coming in and mourning, that would spoil the picture, wouldn't it? Or if your new Adam kept showing up at funerals, that would spoil the picture, wouldn't it? So he was to be totally devoted to God. Yes, that is part of what's going on. But he was also to play his part in the picture, in the play. Next up in the picture is marriage. Now, why would it be important that the new Adam would have a wife of reputable character in this new Eden. Yeah, well, if you think about it, Eve didn't turn out so well, did she, really, for Adam? And again, we get this mixture of moral purity and display purity. Have a look at verses 7 to 9. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to God. Um, and it goes on, uh, yeah, verse 9. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burnt with fire. For the sons of Aaron, they were not to marry prostitutes or women of questionable sexual reputation or divorcees. The first two groups having abused the gift of sex that God has given to us. The second having broken the marriage bond between them and their husband. Now this verges more towards the moral side of things. There are similar commandments given in the New Testament. Though divorce is not always morally wrong, 
But it is always a sadness, and it is always a break in God's marriage pattern. The fact that this is more on the moral side of the things is reinforced by the fact that they're told not to allow their daughters into prostitution, with very severe penalties if they do. <clears throat> Remember that, as we've seen, pagan temples... <clears throat> excuse me. Remember, it's pagan temples that did prostitutes. God's temple was not to do prostitutes or anything like that. So the, the, the penalties are very harsh. The high priest, though, he has a mixture of moral practices and symbolic. Have a look down at verse 13. Um, <clears throat> and he shall take a wife in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has not been uh, a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute, these she shall not marry, but he shall take as a wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. He's given the same moral restrictions as the other sons of Aaron, but on top of that he can't marry a widow, and he must marry a virgin. Now practically, that seems to be linked to this idea of offspring. If he married a widow or someone who'd been sexually active before marriage, there would be no way to guarantee that the first son and next high priest would definitely be his own son. But it's not saying that there's anything morally superior in avoiding marrying widows or insisting on marrying a virgin. People make mistakes in life, and to write them off like that is not morally superior. It displays a lack of grace, really, when we think that we come to Christ uh, often as adults. Again, though, this is symbolic. It adds to the image of innocence and purity that we find in Eden. A pure, spotless bride, like we'll find in the new Eden. So Ephesians 5, 25-27, you normally get these at weddings, don't you? But here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or anything, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. One day, the bride of the new Adam will be holy, blemishless, spotless. And Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 11 as presenting the church as a pure virgin to Christ. Then in Revelation, the church is presented to Christ as a virginal bride prepared for her husband. It's sort of set in opposition uh, to the whore of Babylon. That the world is chasing after. So this is creating that foreshadowing in the tabernacle. This is painting this picture in the rules of the priests and the high priests. You know, shepherds have their tea towels on their heads in the play, don't they? And new Adams, well, they have their wives of reputable character. Then finally, in, in uh, chapter 21, the third part, um, another command that makes more sense in the light of this picture they are to fit into the picture in their makeup. So have a look at verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer bread, uh, the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, and it goes on. Now this is where if we say this is all about morality, we get into real trouble. There is absolutely nothing immoral about being disabled, nor does it make you inferior to other people. 
You can see in this passage with regard to the provisions that they were given. Actually, they were given the same provisions as the rest of the priests, without actually being required to serve in the tabernacle. Really, they're treated with the utmost dignity. What they cannot do is present sacrifices in the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle is a picture of a restored world. A world restored to its state before the fall, but even better. In Eden and in the new world, there is no sickness, there is no disability. Jesus gives us a glimpse of that, doesn't he? As he goes around healing people, healing the lame and the blind. And then, at the end, Isaiah 35, uh, 5 and 6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the future that we're looking forward to, isn't it? Far from being disparaging to the disabled community, this was supposed to be a symbol of hope for them. It was not that they weren't wanted by God. It was a sign that God was going to heal them of their disability in the age to come. If this life is all there is, then we might cry discrimination by such commandments. But this is a picture of the life to come, when they will be there without disability. A wonderful picture of the new Eden. So that's what this is painting for us in this chapter. These regulations are making sure that the priests and the things around them fit the picture of what is going on in the tabernacle. So it's not surprising then that if this is all about Eden and that picture there, that the big danger for the priests in chapter 22 is food. Do you notice that? That's basically what chapter 22 is about, food. It might seem trivial, but remember that's what got the first Adam kicked out of Eden, wasn't it? So again, there's going to be more going on, but let's take a look. So our second point, priests must not fall into sin by food, chapter 22. The first sort of food that they... Oh, I've got all three again, there we go. Um, first one is food eaten while impure. So in verses 1 to uh, 9, there's this idea of there are things that will make the priest impure. When he's impure, he cannot eat the food. The principle throughout Leviticus is that the holy and the unclean must be kept separate. There's a sort of buffer zone in the middle called clean, but the unclean never becomes holy in one step, if you like. Unclean and holy must be kept apart. If the priest is unclean for any reason, he cannot eat his portion of the sacrifice while he is unclean. The unclean and the holy can never meet. And the consequences, if they do, are dire. Have a look at verse 9 of chapter 22. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. It almost sounds very Edenesque, doesn't it? Almost on the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they're to stay away from, from food while they're impure. Second thing is that their food... Uh, is not to be eaten by others. In chapters, uh, verses uh, 10 to 16, non-holy people were not allowed to eat holy food. So no foreign guests, no hired servants, only the priests and their families. Interestingly, the, the slaves here are accounted part of the family while they were slaves. They're treated as part of the high priest's family. They, they get to eat of the priestly food. Again, slavery is not great. We keep meeting it, don't we, in Leviticus. 
The Israelites' uh, slavery was a bit different. It was debt slavery. People sold themselves into slavery. And the laws in Leviticus, we've, we've been seeing, are actually there to protect them. There have always been abuses of those uh, things, whatever the law. But the law is always kind to slaves. I mean, after all, they were slaves in Egypt, weren't they? But the food was there for the priests living. It was to be enough to feed him and his family and all who were dependent on him for sustenance. Including any daughters who'd come back into the family home after divorce or bereavement. But it was only his family. He wasn't to extend it to anybody else. Uh, they were not set apart like the sons of Aaron were. And you could almost imagine it like playing out like the expenses scandal. Do you know what I mean? Uh, using uh, God's food to sort of pay hired servants or impress foreign visitors. The priests were not allowed uh, access, were not to allow access to this food to anybody else. And if anyone else who, uh, who was not supposed to eat it did eat it accidentally, there is a sacrifice here. It's not named specifically, but its form shows it was the guilt offering or compensation offering from week one, compensating the Lord specifically against him and his house. So it's bad, but sacrifice is given as the solution. And then finally, they weren't allowed uh, food to be accepted where it shouldn't be. The final temptation for the priests was to accept dodgy sacrifices. It happened in Israel's history, so Malachi 1 verse 8 when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? For the priests, it must have been a temptation. If you think about this as food. I mean, a blind lamb, I imagine, I don't know, a blind lamb tastes as good as a fully sighted one. Yeah? It's possible also that they took backhanders at points through Israel's history, bribes, so that people could offer the worst animals that they had and keep the best ones to breathe, because you'd think that would make sense, wouldn't you? So they took bribes at other points, but this is saying no, they're not allowed to be offered. As the priests were the holy ones in the human realm, so the sacrificial animals were to be the holy ones of the animal realm. If animals were coming into Eden, if you like, they were to come in blemishless, or not at all. They were to be a, a picture of the perfect blemishless sacrifice needed to re-enter Eden. However tasty they looked, they were not to be offered, other, uh, otherwise the picture would be spoiled. There's a couple of interesting additions that we get uh, to, on top of the sort of regulations that you get for the priests. It couldn't be a foreign-born animal, in verse 25, only an Israelite sheep or goat will do. They could only be offered on the eighth day or later. They had to be healthy enough to survive a week. They couldn't be offered on the same day as their mother. That seems to be a pagan practice, common at the time, thinking that it made the sacrifice extra powerful. It was to be a blemishless sacrifice. So the picture here really is of a blemishless sacrifice, as well as a blemishless priest. As one commentator puts it, every generation of God's people must be taught the promise of a perfect priest who offers a perfect sacrifice for the congregation's atonement. So this is not just to be viewed as a lamb chop for the priest, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, the ultimate spotless sacrifice that cleanses us from all sin. In the play, there is to be a blemishless priest offering a blemishless sacrifice 
And the priests in Moses' day and onward were not to spoil this picture. Now finally, and more briefly, one important point we've missed as we've gone through. Actually though, it's the Lord that makes them holy. Have a look at verses 31 to 35 of chapter 22. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Our last point is that, actually, it's the Lord that makes them holy. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, or words to that effect, are repeated six times through our passage. They form a sort of chorus to the passage all the way through. Each section ends with this making it a unified whole. Verses 31 to 35 are are the biggest, longest form. Now, isn't it fascinating that in a passage that's full of rules, the refrain is, it's God that makes you holy. It's God that makes you holy. It's God that makes you holy. Even as you're involved in the holiest stuff that Israel did... It's God that makes you holy. It's God that makes you holy. It's God that makes you holy. I think we sometimes get into our heads like this. Rules make me holy. Obedience makes me holy. Trying hard makes me holy. But even here in Leviticus, a book renowned for its rules, it's God who makes us holy. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's suggesting that we sit back and do nothing, let go and let God... Indeed, we were told last time, what we be holy, for I am holy. But what it means is, it's not about the priests making themselves holy for God. You know, marry the right person, mourn the right way, don't break the rules, and you'll be holy. No, 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 no. This is not some vending machine, you know, put in works, holiness comes out. Remember, last week, holiness has to do with the character of your God. It's about being close to him and resembling him. The reason they are to do this, to play this part, is not to make themselves holy, but because God makes them holy. He's brought them into relationship with him. They've not worked their way up into a relationship with him. And ultimately, it's God being with them that sets them apart as holy and changes them on the inside. I don't know if you ever uh, see old couples sort of sat down in the streets. Well, not not in the streets, but on a bench somewhere in the road. And I don't know if you, I, I sometimes see if you look at them, they look really alike. I don't know if you find that. I find that couples over time, somehow they start to look more and more uh, alike. I've often wondered what it is. But certainly characters can often get closer to each other, can't you? So you, uh, you know, you get older and you spend a lot of time with someone. Actually, if you love someone, you start to become a bit like them, don't you? If you spend all that time with them. Well, that's still the case today, really. That's, that's the way it works. It says we spend time with our God. As we love him more, that actually our character starts to change. We know that we're saved by grace. But actually, it's... I'm going to go off my notes for a second. We know that we're saved by grace, but actually we're, we're rescued by grace as well. We're sanctified by grace. 
Yeah, so it's actually as we spend time with our God, it's, rules can be helpful sometimes. But if you make it all about rules, then really we've misunderstood what the gospel is about. There are churches that subtly teach, you know, you come to Christ by grace, a free gift, amen, but then life in Christ is by works. No rules before, not saved by rules, and then suddenly where you live by rules. You know, it's like only by grace can we enter, only by rules can we stand. That's the sort of uh, the teaching. Now we're created for good works, but it's still by grace, it doesn't switch off. If you don't believe me, read Paul's letter to the Galatians this afternoon and see what he thought about starting by grace and carrying on by works. God is the one who makes us holy, who is making us holy, who makes us more like his son Jesus. And we become more like him and learn from him as we fellowship with him. As we spend more time with him, as we love him more, are we going to do things that hurt him? No. Not if we can help it, but not because it's a rule. I don't make loud noises at home, generally. I try not to. It's not written in any rule book in my house. But I love my kids, and they hate loud noises. I know from talking to them, I know from spending time with them, that they hate it when there's all that they just can't stand it. Why would I not want to live in line with what they want and what they like if I can help it? But not because it's a rule, because I love them. So the answer to holiness is not rules, but relationship. And I'm not here by saying that rules do not exist or that there are no boundaries. Listen back to previous weeks if you don't believe me. But as Colossians 2 said, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, the ABCs, why do you, if still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Rules look clever, but by themselves, without God, they are of zero value in actually producing holiness. What we need is someone who is inside us, working, who is holy. And we have one, the Holy Spirit. What we need is a holy yet merciful high priest who can show us mercy when we fail. And we have one, Jesus Christ. So in this passage, we have a great high priest, a new Adam pictured here, perfect and blemishless, bringing a pure and blemishless sacrifice for his people. We are not that priest, but we love and adore him. We honour him for his sacrifice. We follow him daily in lives lived out for him, growing in holiness as we look to him, strengthened by his Holy Spirit. More than any ironic priest, we need this priest. So do we have this priest, the Lord Jesus? Is he your priest? Or are you still coming to God on your own merit, wherever you're at this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. Father, thank you that he is that true new Adam, Father, that he really did enter into heaven. Father, thank you that he was a lamb without a blemish, a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice, and that he makes us holy. Father, help us never to rely on our own holiness, our own ability to produce it. But Father, help us to stay close to you and grow in likeness to you as we fellowship with you day by day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.